Hello, and welcome to the TAS News Podcast. My name is Joel Roberts, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Callum Mason. Callum, hi. Hi, John. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. We've got uh, several really good exclusives from yourself to, to go through this week. It's been another busy week in the education sector. Um, two of them are on something that we've been looking a great deal at, which is funding pressures, cost pressures, and what it means for schools. Um, yourself and our, our colleague, Rodri Morgan, we put out a great exclusive this week, basically looking at how the funding situation could undermine the government's ambitions for multi-academy trusts. Can you talk us through that to start with? Yeah, absolutely. So so obviously, as you've just mentioned there, earlier this year in the spring, there was a white paper put out by the, the Department for Education, um, which expressed the ambition that schools, all schools will be in or moving towards being a, a strong trust, a strong family of schools, they called it. Um, obviously, at the moment, we have a bit of a mishmash of a system where some schools are in trusts, some uh, are maintained, they're run by the, the local authority. For this to happen, obviously, what we need is we need schools to become academies and for them to be in strong trusts, which is not actually defined, but the DfE says that they start to have sort of central capacity at about 10. So you need some trusts to grow and take on schools. But since since the spring, of course, we've, we've all been reading about the financial pressures that, that everyone is under, and that includes schools, and that's with salary costs, energy prices, catering bills, things like that. And what we've sort of found from speaking to trust leaders and sector leaders is that some say that they are really going to have to put plans to expand. If they're not going to halt them, they're at least going to pause them. Uh, and that's because they think they need to focus on really survival rather than expanding. Um, and if you expand, obviously, you, you might have to take on on schools that are, are in a deficit if they're financially struggling as well. So we may see, and a lot of people that we spoke to for the story sort of suggested, that we may see a, a slowing down of the academisation process, which could um, pose some risk to this target of getting all schools into strong trusts by 2030, which is obviously only eight years away, which is, is quite close for a sort of system level change of that scale to happen. Absolutely. I think what's really interesting about the piece is that it um it kind of illustrates that all of these concerns that schools have been having about finance and about cost pressures there, they're not self-contained. It's not just a question of school X might not be able to balance its books this year. It's about the knock-on effects that it has on on the sector and on decision making. Um and there's quite a few sort of senior people in, in the piece quoted as struck the there's quite a similar thing being said by people at different levels of the system. We've got voices like Jeff Barton, who is the general secretary of ASCOR, and Leora Kudus, who's probably the most influential person in the academy sector, saying similar things about the challenges, I think. Yeah, I think so. I think what Leora was saying and what was sort of backed up by the, the trust leaders that we spoke to is that there would be a deprioritization of things like expansion when you've got more pressing things to be concerned about and what I think some some school leaders were saying, and I think what the the National Governance Association was saying is that if you were taking on a school that was in a deficit, which is may become more common um, if schools struggle financially, it would be wrong for your your governing board to not look at that and raise concerns. And so, as well as schools worrying if as well as trust sorry worrying if they can expand, there'll also be concerns about how they can expand, so which schools they can take on. And I think. There may be some concerns that certain schools, if they're perhaps smaller or or in in danger of running a deficit, they may get left behind as this system level change takes place. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think it's interesting that I wonder if this is something we'll see more from the sector, because in a way, 
off and on for, for as long as I can remember, if you ask people in the education sector, they'll probably say, well, we need more money in, in different bits of it. So there is always an ongoing, you know, there's never be a point where you've got school sector leaders saying, well, at least the funding supplement's great. But nonetheless, this feels like another real pressure point where the funding pressures are not just, it's not just a kind of typical thing we hear. Every time we speak to school leaders, there's a, a real sense of, of kind of worry. And I think if things don't change on the funding front, a real sense of almost panic of going into next year. I think there's a sense that both in academies and in the government that maybe there's enough money sitting in reserves uh, or enough money that might be penciled in for other things that can kind of be paired back in schools. I think there's some analysis said that schools can just about get through this year, but next year is another big worry. And I, and I just wonder whether the sort of comments we're seeing in your piece is the way that the school sector is going to try and put pressure on the government from now on. They're not just going to give dire warnings about what we might have to sack staff or we might, it might affect um, the day-to-day education, but they're also kind of framing it in a political way. Like this is going to affect your policy priorities. Do you, know, you want to kind of transform the school system? Well, we can't do that with the, with the funding situation as it is because we can't take risks. Um, and I wonder whether that is a kind of a, kind of a strength as like a carrot and stick approach for whether that will motivate people in Westminster and Whitehall to, to look again at the funding settlement if it starts to impinge on, on their kind of policy priorities. I think that's, that's the thing that kind of came across to me in your piece. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And I think that the study you were talking about there was the Institute of Fiscal Studies, which said that um, so it's independent. It's not coming from head teachers or, or people who work in schools. They're saying schools can just about afford to fund sort of salary increases this year, um, on a system level at least, um, as, a, as a whole. But next year will be, I think they said, uh, much more problematic was the language I think they used. Um, so, yeah, it, it's not like we're in a short term issue here that that will be fixed. In a, in a year or so and I think you're right with the will it affect sort of policy priorities I suppose it depends how much the government as a whole sort of values this um, this attempt to get all schools into trusts that are, that are strong is it a massive priority or is it something that they thought was a nice to have that that now when it's becoming quite difficult will be moved off the table we'll have to wait and see on that I think yeah absolutely that's a really good point because in a way I'm talking about it like it's the big priority of the day but it was the big priority of the spring. And that's, you could argue, almost three governments ago in terms of yeah. um, certainly four education secretaries ago. So, yeah, the context had changed. But nevertheless, it's that, I think there is a desire from some in the system to move to a, I think it's a feeling that we're kind of halfway in a way. We've got a, some people call it a two-tier system. I've heard it referred to as a mixed economy. But we've got this idea that there's different types of state school and it will be cleaner and more sensible to have a kind of a, a singular system. So there's some people who really think that the government's end game is worth getting to. But yeah, as you say, eight years, in a way, it sounds a long time, but to achieve the kind of system level change that they're kind of envisaging, it's not a long time because yeah, if you've got trusts now saying, well, this year is all about survival and we don't know what we're going to do next year, then you're already kind of down to five or six years where trusts are feeling that they're living in too uncertain a climate to be making any, any long-term decisions. Um, I think we'll move on to another story that's kind of underpinned by the same situation, which is the funding and cost pressures. And I, I think it's a really, really interesting read. So if you, these are all on a test of common, and this one's one we put up today, is really worth reading. And it's about the impact of cost pressures on special schools and their staffing. Again, Callum, can you talk us through the kind of top lines? Yeah, so absolutely. Obviously, 
obviously schools generally are suffering from financial pressure at the moment and we've seen quite a few surveys we've heard from heads who say this might result in them reducing staffing levels maybe reducing the breadth of their curriculum but this piece focuses particularly on the non-mainstream sector so special schools uh, hospital schools and alternative provision and this is a survey from the national national network of special schools for school business professionals a uh, bit of a mouthful I, th- I think i managed to get that out correctly um but they've done the survey, which asks specifically uh, sort of school business leaders in special schools, what are you going to have to cut in the next few years because of your financial pressures? And what came up quite high was that I think a quarter were thinking about or not thinking about said they were going to have to cut classroom support staff. And I think the message we get from special school leaders, which they really do want to be out in the open and talked about, is that obviously they're not minimising what mainstream schools are facing. Mainstream schools are facing massive difficulties. But in a way that what special schools face is unique because it's not about the breadth of curriculum or it's not about having to increase class sizes so people don't get support. That's obviously really bad and diminishes the quality of the education. But in special schools, it's about the safety of the students and the staff. If they don't have enough staff to to sort of look after and and work with the pupils they can't make the classes bigger really so they're probably going to have to decrease in size it challenges the viability of what they do and one special school leader i spoke to for the story said it's just going to mean that the special school sector in terms of the state sector diminishes in size and the independent sector will really have to plug that gap yeah i just that's such an important interesting point and there's two bits there um, the, the first thing, as you say, is I think really powerful. I think there's sometimes a temptation for people outside of the sector to see support staff or teaching assistant and sort of see it as somehow a an adult or a supplementary or a benefit role rather than rather than what it is, which is a fundamental role. But in, but never more so than in a special school setting. I think um, in terms of the intervention that children will need, in terms of the ratios that the schools need in order for classes to be able to function, in terms of healthcare in terms of sort of safety, as you say, and safeguarding, it really just feel reading your piece that they're sort of saying, we're going to have to start kicking at the bottom brick here. Do you know what I mean? This is fundamental to how we operate. Um, I sometimes mention this, I'm a same parent myself, so I've kind of seen it firsthand. And it's, it's kind of unthinkable to see sense school leaders in that position and having to contemplate these, these cuts because they're not, I say it's not something that's additional or about breadth or depth. It's really something that's fundamental to the way the school operates. In a sense, like when I did about my own experience, the, the classroom assistance and the staff ratio and the attention that they can give is essentially the difference, if you like, that the specialist setting provides above the mainstream setting. Um, so yeah, I think it's a really, really important story and a well, well worth reading. I think it's another example as well of just, um, just how far reaching this current cost situation is. It affects so much of the education system. And I think the sector is doing a really good job of kind of telling government how and why this is a problem. And hopefully we're kind of helping get that across. But I think, as you say, it does remain to be seen whether, whether this shifts the dial. And I guess the problem is that there's such a big question mark over public finances and about what the government does next to balance the books that the education sector is going to have to wait and see whether, whether these warnings are heeded. Um, We'll change tack a bit now because you've got another really great exclusive this week, which is on something uh, very different. And I'll again, I'll ask you to, to talk us through it to start with. Obviously, the National 
tutoring program has been a source of ongoing discussion and controversy for well over a year. But we've reported on a really, I think, really important intervention from um, the head teachers union, Asphalt, Asphalt this week. Can you can you take that one for us? Cheers. Yeah, abso- absolutely. Um, I think that it is very different, but in in a way, it's also quite similar. And we're seeing this with almost every story we do at the moment that it's about money and it's about funding and this although it's about catch up and it's about tutoring it does come back to money so the national tutoring program is the government's flagship scheme Uh, it's been revamped this year in a way in that all the money goes to schools um for them to spend as they as they see fit last year when they ran sessions they i think they could fund they can there's a limit to how much they can pay for the sessions but they can use the money to subsidise a part of that session. They, they don't get it all paid for. So last year, I think they basically would, they got money from the, the DfE and they could spend 75% of that. For each session, they could fund 75% of the session with the, with the money from the DfE and they had to make up the remaining 25% from their budgets. This year, that's been slashed a little bit. So when they pay for a session by a tutor or, or whatever, they can use they can fund 60% of that session with the cash they have from the DfE and they have to make up the remaining 40%. Now, as we've discussed in the past two stories, schools are really struggling with cash. So what a lot of heads are saying is we want to use the tutoring, but we can't afford to use that to to use our own money to fund the extra 40% of that session. That's quite a lot to make up. So what the ASCO union has proposed, and there's been chat about this for a little while, but they've sort of formally put it to the, the schools minister, Nick Gibb, and it'd be really interesting to see to see what we hear back on this. So what they've said is that they want schools to be able to use, they don't want any more money. They're not saying you need to go to the Treasury and get more catch-up money, but they want schools to be able to use all of the tutoring money they get to pay for the session so they can fund 100% of the session rather than 60%. Now, the downside to that, and I think what the DfE might say is that that means you can run less tutoring, obviously, because you spread your money across fewer sessions. But the counter argument is what schools are saying is at the moment we can't we can't use them anyway because we can't fund them. We can't fund them with the extra forty percent we have to add in. So actually, this is a win-win because it doesn't require the DfE to go to the Treasury and sort of ask for more money for schools. It doesn't require any extra money on their part to be allocated to schools, but it but it means that schools will have more chance of being able to use this catch-up cash. And if it's not used, it's just going to go back to government anyway. So it's money that's been allocated, and it seems like, from reading this, a lot of heads seem to think, very sensible suggestion, we're really on board with this. So it'll be really interesting to follow in the next couple of weeks what, what the DfE says on that. Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting piece, because as you say, in a way... The only thing that this costs to DFE is maybe a little, a little bit of face. Do you know what I mean? Because the money that, that will be spent is already allocated to be spent. And I guess you've got Askell sort of saying, well, as it stands, a chunk of this funding won't be used because schools can't meet the other, the other proportion that they need to find. I, I guess I could imagine from the other side that the DFE are thinking, well, we were hoping that we're almost unlocking extra. You know, we're giving you X amount to make it viable. And then we're asking the schools to, to sort of supplement it and the, the reach therefore is further, it goes farther. But it only goes farther if this tuition is actually taking place. If, if, if the government takes heads of their word and they, you know, that we can't afford to do it like this, then as you say, it's money that the government is wanting to be spent helping kids to catch up that won't be delivered because it's not affordable the way it's been framed for schools. That's the kind of 
I, I guess the tension that the, the government's got to decide what's the best use of its resources, really. Yeah, and I think what's worth saying as well is that the government probably does know at this stage how much tutoring is being done this year. Um, they were they planned to release a a sort of league table in the autumn of how tutoring, what schools, how many schools were doing tutoring, how much they were using. It's not been released yet. I guess we're still technically in autumn, so it could be in the next month and a bit. But the DfE probably does have data on how much tutoring has been done by schools. They've just chosen not to release it yet. So they will know and they'll know how much what, what heads are saying is true. But certainly anecdotally, heads seem to be saying that they can't afford to use it at the moment. And what's worth adding further is that next year, next academic year, the subsidy drops further. It actually drops to 25%. So schools have to fund 75% of a session from their budget. And given that independent bodies are sort of saying next year is going to be worse, you have to yeah, think exactly. it's, going to, it's not going to be used next year if that continues. So yeah. I think a lot of people have actually campaigned to have that to have that up next year. Um, so we'll have to see how that happens. Yeah, I, can, I guess it's, it, it comes back again to the point I made a bit earlier on about, you know, DFE has these various political priorities or policy priorities and, or soundbites or whatever. And one of them, obviously, over the past few years has been that we want to help pupils catch up from the impact of the pandemic. Well, you know, if we've got heads already saying that the current setup is unaffordable, if the subsidy tilts even more to demand on school budgets, then you could see the whole thing falling away entirely. Uh, so that would be a really, a really interesting test, I think, in terms of how powerful schools can campaign on the government and how much of a priority capture spending is is for the DfE in, in a year's time or two years' time. I completely agree. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's um, that's enough from us today. That's uh, just a taste of the the, the coverage on. On the news site on TED this week, there's a couple of other really great stories out today, including a, a feature from our colleague Matilda Martin on what we might expect from teacher strikes, and you can check all of that out at TEDS.com. Well, Callum, thanks ever so much for your time, and we'll speak again soon. All right, thanks a lot. Cheers, John. Next up, we'll be hearing from our analysis team, Dan Worth and Gronia Hallahan. They'll be looking at a really interesting piece we have this week from Sir David Carter, the former National Schools Commissioner, who's looking at how multi-academy trusts can persuade primary schools to join them. And they'll also be considering the new Equalities and Human Rights Commission guidance on how schools can avoid discriminating against pupils over their hairstyles. Hope you enjoy. Yes, thanks for that, John. Um, welcome to the analysis section of the podcast with me, Dan Worth, and Gronja Hallahab. Hi, Gronja. Hello. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yes, very good, thank you. And looking forward to talking through a couple of very interesting pieces from our desk this week. And we're going to start with a piece from Sir David Carter, who was the National Schools Commissioner from 2015 to 2018, and also a former MAT CEO. So a very knowledgeable person to have writing for us. So really pleased to get him uh, uh, offering his views on things. And he wrote a great piece for us this week about the ways we can convince more primary schools to join multi-academy trusts because it's well known that secondary schools are in the main are within trusts and primary schools less so and he sort of proffers some reasons for this and then offers three ways he thinks that we could achieve this and I'll, I'll go through I'll start with just the first one of the three which I thought was particularly interesting which was trying to sort of look at the benefits that you derive when you have if you have primary schools and secondary schools in the same multi-academy trust, you can do, you can sort of create an all-through benefit. Obviously, it's not the same school, but they're going to be within the same sort of organisation, and that means things come with you know, same same ways of working, same ethos for a parent. At least you've got that same sort of continuation of who you're engaging with 
effectively the same platforms to use, all that kind of thing. Gordon, you've obviously worked in schools previously. Do you see that? Do you understand? Do you, do you think that's a solid argument? Because it seems quite a compelling one to me. Oh, it's a really compelling argument. And I think when we look at the benefits of all three schools that literally are set up like that, where you've got the primary attached to the secondary, we know they work really well. And scaling this up to a mat where you've got the idea of, yep, we're all in the same trust, that change between the infant to junior, junior to secondary, secondary into sixth form, it makes sense to make it feel for the children and for the families. Like you've started in one place and you're just shifting location a little bit as you, as you move through, but you've, you're in that family. You know the systems, you know who's in charge, names are familiar, processes are familiar. And I think when we look at the issues in education and where you've got, where, where problems arise, it is at those transition points. And if we can do anything that eases the move between primary and secondary and joins up things, even even thinking about like on a practical basis, like how you pay for school, school dinners, mm. how you travel to school, like all of those, all the method of communication that you have with your, with your school and how parents relate to the school, that's easier. Plus, you've got all the benefits of the curriculum, the fact that primaries and secondaries can plan together and you can have that joined up that joined up thinking between between the mm. two different stages really matters. And think about the conversations that we we hear when we go into schools and on Twitter, on uh, Facebook. Primaries talking about, you know, I was struggling to get their secondary feeder schools to make time to come and work with them. When you're in the same mat and when you're sharing CPD and when you're sharing um, resources and, and planning, all of that is made easier. So I think it's a really compelling argument and one that I think works both on both sides of that fence. Like as a as a parent, it works really well. And for the teachers in the school, it works really well. Oh, and another good reason for teachers that like moving between primary and secondary. So we've seen more of this recently of teachers moving from teaching secondary to teaching primary and primary to secondary. And when we see um, about the needs of uh, the number of pupils we've got in the population for the cohorts, more primary teachers maybe thinking about moving into secondary as the, the demand for jobs change. It works really well for that as well, doesn't it? Having primaries in your mat. Well, it does. And you've, you've, you've covered every point I had left to make, really, um, in, one, in one go there. So, um, yeah, the other points David talks about were a bit like what you talked about, cross-phase collaboration and, and working together and sort of adding that capacity and skill base into your trust and selling that to the primary is like, you're, we're not going to come and take over you, but we actually want to bring your expertise into us and you can help us solve problems. So it's not going to be, we're going to take autonomy away from you. We're going to give you some. Um, but yes, I think, I think it's a great piece. And obviously as, as our conversation shows, you know, it does bring up a lot of sort of interesting points. Uh, and we, we know, you know, there is this move to create more trust or grow trust. I mean, obviously it's been a bit sort of waylaid by some of the sort of political, uh, ongoings, to put it mildly, but generally there seems to be that push on going there. So I think this is something that's going to crop up more. Um, so yeah, a great piece from Sir David. And we look forward to more from him that we will no doubt discuss in the, uh, the weeks ahead and weeks and months ahead. So turning to a very different sort of arena now, but no less important, obviously. Um, a couple of weeks ago, there was new guidance from the Equality and Human Rights Commission around how schools needed to avoid discriminating or potentially discriminating against students because of certain hairstyles, including afros and head coverings. Obviously, uh, um, an important area is something that's probably what well, has been overlooked for, for decades, really, in schools where, you know, pupils might be find themselves on the wrong end of some sort of behavior policy or something because something that actually is, you know, intrinsic to who they are and is part of their, their sort of culture and so forth. 
And yeah, it was sort of overlooked. And now we've got this guidance kind of saying, actually, schools really need to think about this. And so we commissioned a piece from a lawyer, uh, Teresa Kerr at uh, Winkworth Sherwood. And she kind of writes about, well, what schools should be doing now in relation to this guidance and makes the point that it isn't law, it's guidance. But, you know, really, it kind of is saying this is what you should be doing. She gives some very good advice around, you know, review of policies. In fact, definitively says governors should review their policies, you know, really look at these governors and SLT. And, you know, you can use tools from the EHRC to help do this about what you need to make sure you're not doing, what you are doing, and how you think about this. More generally, what what do you think, what have you seen as a reaction been to this as something that schools should now be thinking about and the kind of advice like this that we're offering that, that could be helpful to them? Um, I think overwhelmingly, when you look at the comments that people have made on this piece, when it went up onto our Facebook page and over on Twitter, and I've seen it shared in a few different like separate groups as well on, on online forums, it has all been, we should have had this before, really pleased to see this. We used to have rules like this, but we've changed them recently and other schools saying, oh, this is something we're looking at at the moment. So I think that, you know, this has been a long time coming and now it's here. Everyone's really pleased to see it. And I think that it's, you know, the schools where the teachers were saying, well, we don't, we haven't changed it yet, but we're thinking about it. So they described the, the demographic of their school. They didn't have very many pupils that they felt that it would have applied to. And therefore, you know, it's good that they're thinking about it now. And I think that it's, it's been really welcomed. And I think people are pleased to have the guidance and it's a good reminder for everybody that they need to think about things like school uniform rules and school policies to make sure that they do adhere to these to the the equality law. Yes, I mean, and, and we see a lot of this in society generally, aren't we, about people recognising that in the past, the way things were policed, shall we say, was actually a bit discriminatory. And now we're, we're moving, you know, maybe slowly, some would say, but sort of, I suppose, you know, gradually in the right direction towards being more inclusive. But and for schools, that does open up a lot of things, doesn't it? Whereby in the past, you know, a behaviour policy would be one thing or, or, or a, you know, a, uh, an attendance policy wouldn't say this or whatever it might be. Well, actually, the way you portray something now is like, you can't just, you can't do it like that anymore. And that, that is tricky. And, you, know, and you, you do feel for schools a bit because, you know, it's not easy to get this right, is it? And, and oftentimes it's more, it's not because people don't want to get it right deliberately. They just don't really understand what they're meant to be doing now. Or they don't realise that what they have in this place before was wrong because no one had ever really pointed it out. They've so not thought moving... about it, have they? Yes, it's that, exactly. It's that point of, you know, we've just left it in place and it's not been reviewed. Mm. And there's not been somebody in a position to review it who's been able to say, do you know what, like, I've got personal experience of this. Mm. This is why we need to change this. And when you think about how um, how the like, demographic of teachers are made up and senior leaders, mm. I think the fact that that's been changing, probably it's not unconnected that this is changing too. Like, it's part of a wider picture, isn't it? Yes, exactly. So I society as a whole is sort of talking about these kind of things more. And then again, to get someone like the EHRC kind of putting out direct, like, this is what you should be doing, and then having lawyers saying, well, because of that, schools really should be doing this. Um, it'd be fascinating if anyone's listening to this and your school, you have now, as a result of this, started to look at this, you know, sort of, and, and quickly, you know, if I thought, look, we can't just ignore this anymore. We've, we've been given guidance here. We need to get better at this. We know our demographic of our pupils covers this, these sort of areas. We need to be stronger at this. And please do let us know. It'd be very interesting to hear about that. Um, but yeah, otherwise, Gorilla, thank you so much for your input. There are two you know, very different stories I think we've talked about, but show the sort of breadth of everything that schools have to think about and the kind of, you know, what we need to be discussing. So great to get your input as always. Thank you for asking me on.